Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey friends, my name is Andre and this is the Tennis and Bagels podcast, a podcast about essentially anything tennis from recreational to pro and you have it. And before I start a topic for today, um, I would just like to have an announcement. Um, you've, um, follow, uh, if you follow for the last couple, maybe, maybe four or five or even more episodes, um, you've seen that um, I haven't just been hosting this by myself. I have, I've had um Vansh Vermani with me this whole time and uh among some talks and uh, some conversations we have decided to start off and uh partnership at Tennis and Bagels and he will be my new co-host so I don't have to just present him every time and he's just gonna keep um helping me a lot with uh, uh discussions and a lot of the, the people that come into this podcast is Thanks to him, so I'm very thankful that he is with me, and I'm actually really, really excited with this new direction that the pod is taking with a second host. And yeah, he's here with me today, of course. How are you, Vansh? Hey, Andre. Yeah, I'm doing doing really well. Yeah, um, it's been awesome doing the last uh, five to six podcasts with you, um, and it's been really exciting. We've had a lot of great discussions. The guests have always been good, and so I'm I'm excited about this uh, this new partnership. Yeah, cool. So yeah, me and Vansh already have a, a, a lot of plans for future episodes. So just tune in if you if you like to hear us talking about tennis. If you maybe even have topics that you want to suggest that we talk about, just shoot us a message on uh, Twitter or just reach out on our social media. They're all available on every episode. Um, so yeah, and without further ado on that one, let's start on the topic for the day, which is... Um, it's it's a little less relevant, I guess, because like the U.S. Open has started, but the Cincinnati Masters has just finished, and um, Djokovic has uh, completed his career double Masters 1000, and there's a lot of talk talks on just kind of like how important this is, and I just kind of like uh, felt like there was a, a thing about Masters 1000s and those tournaments that are not slams. And there was even a comment that I saw that a person was like grouping it with the 250s and 500s, kind of like in the same kind of like level in a sense. And then you look at the Grand Slams and then you look at those level. And I don't think that's really fair. So let's just start off like, what do you, how do you feel about, um, you know, those Masters and Thousands bunch? Oh, and maybe yeah. about like the, the Djokovic accomplishment, if you want to touch on that as, as a, a bit right now too. Yeah, I mean, certainly. So the Masters 1000s have, have been around certainly for uh, as a branding for the ATP. They're always they're one level below uh, what the slams, the four slams are. Uh, and it's based on ranking points. So the four mm -hmm. slams, they award 2,000 points to the winner. 
and the Masters 1000s, there's actually nine of them. And so uh, those, it's very clear-cut, especially in the ATP, that you have the ATP 250s, and then a stratosphere above is the ATP 500s, and then the nine Masters 1000s. And actually, back in the day, if you look at in the 90s, they used to be called the Super Nines. And then eventually, they changed to Master Series, and now they're called Masters 1000s. But no, certainly, uh, these tournaments are very prestigious. And it's, you know, if you look at the elite list of winners... There's not a whole lot of guys apart from the big four that have won these Masters tournaments, uh, mm-hmm. certainly in the last 15 years, I'd say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, occasionally we see draws open up and uh, we see new maybe first-time winners, like we saw Jack Sock winning it in Paris. And, you know, we've seen like Hatchinov and we've seen a few like first-time winners when mm-hmm. you know certain top seeds fall early. But really, it's really hard to win these tournaments. And you know why also it's extremely hard is because the draws are more compact. There's maybe 32, sometimes 64 players uh, playing mm-hmm. these. And so that means that you have back-to-back matches against potentially really tough opponents without a day's rest. Because as you know, in the slams that are two weeks, uh, you know, the top seeds usually, and everyone usually gets a, a day of rest in between their matches. So that makes it really hard. You saw, um, if we look at Cincinnati and the, the US Open three-week bubble that's going on right now, you know, mm-hmm. we see we saw how exhausting it was for Djokovic um, certainly to go through a three-hour marathon against Roberto Bautista Agut and come back from the brink and win that match 7-6 in the fifth and then make such a quick turnaround, um, quite literally 16 hours later, um, playing against a really informed Milos Raonic whilst dealing with yeah. so much off the court, um, having having a neck injury throughout the whole week that was bothering him and some stomach issues and uh, you know a lot of distractions as well with his involvement in politics. And so it was a really huge achievement for him to go and win Cincinnati for the second time. And he's now the only man in history to have held um, all nine Masters 1000 and have won them all twice. He was the only guy two years ago when he beat Federer in the final in 2018 of Cincinnati mm-hmm. to have them all, to have won them all once. And so now he's further separating himself uh, from his elite rivals. And not to mention, this was a record-tying 35th Masters 1000. Yeah, exactly. Well. So, yeah, and, and it's another thing was all with the, the gold masters. Uh, uh, we are aware that um, Ivan Lando was able to win them as well. Like kind of like hold all of them as well. Like right. maybe obviously not at the same time, but like he, he won it in his career. Mm-hmm. And but like ever since the the nomenclature of it or however you name it, uh, how how things turned out to be, Djokovic is the only one who has officially done it in, in that regard. But like, so if we're looking just to facilitate our discussion, um, we're just going to look at the, this uh, nomenclature and just kind of like how the the tournaments are right now, because it's just going to be easier. Otherwise, we're just going to have to be jumping into history and that will take a while. Sure. Yeah. So, um, but you, you, you mentioned um, that um, only, um, only a handful of players have been able in the last 15 years. And I actually went off uh, and looked out at the, the winners from right. all of the... Um, since 2003, because that's kind of like when I assumed that Roger Federer kind of like started his, his speak. Yes. Um, and uh, can, you, can you take a guess uh, how many tournaments were won since 2003 by people outside of the Big Four? Uh, outside of the Big Four? Yeah, like uh, how many titles, not how many people? 25? Actually, it's a little bit higher than that. It's been, uh, it's, it's 40, 43 titles were won by non-Big Four players. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, out of all of... Yeah. Sorry? uh, I mean, yeah, because some players uh, did win them more than once. Like, I know Zverev has won three Masters, and there was was, uh, Nalbandian and Davidenko as well. Right. Yeah. So it's an interesting fact, too, that you mentioned them. So you have... The person has won more uh, ATP Masters since 2003 outside of the Big Four was Andy Roddick. And he had as many as five ATP uh, 1000, which is pretty ridiculous, honestly, if you consider like how many Federer and uh, Djokovic and Nadal and a little bit on the lesser scale, Andy Murray has has won. Mm -hmm. Um, So besides him, uh, the most, the people have have, have won the most uh, Masters on thousands were... Zverev with three, and Ferrero as well with three. And then everybody else has won less than that. And there's a ton of, like, one-time winners. And by the way, I'm counting as well with the um, uh, uh, Hamburg yeah, Masters. Yeah, that um, just used a to, quick yeah. correction on Ferrero's actually won four of them. Four? Which one? Yeah. He's won so the Hamburg won, as well. Yeah, he's won, he won Rome in 2001, and then he won Monte Carlo 2002 and 2003. And he also won uh, the Madrid Masters, which was played on hard court. He won that in 2003. Yeah. So, but like, here's the thing. I've been, I've been, I've, I've counted them since uh, 2003. Oh, since 2003. Yeah. Right. Okay. But yeah, no, you're right. Other, other yeah. than that, I have in this list, I have uh, um, Andre Agassi and Korea and other people who has, have won um, more than that. So, right. yeah. But it, it's honestly a pretty big achievement for, for them. You, you see how tough it is to win those tournaments and how the big four has dominated them. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the, the things that I find it, that it bothers me a bit is how people say that like the, the big four, they kind of like don't care as much about those tournaments, which is clearly isn't true. Because if you were for that, Nadal, Nadal wouldn't have 35, Djokovic wouldn't have 35, and so on and so forth, right? So yeah, yeah it's it's... It's still a thousand points. It's a mandatory tournament for the most of them. Monte Carlo isn't. Um, and it awards a lot of money too. So they obviously care about those those tournaments. The Sunshine Double is probably one of the greatest achievements that you can have um, outside of the Grand Slams um, in, in a single year. And they care about those. You can see how much they fight for those. And you see so many good matches coming out of those. Yeah. But for some reason, it just feels like whenever we start talking about um, achievements and career, stuff like that, the Grand Slams just seem to jump out far bigger than just twice as big, you know, this tournament. Yeah, certainly. And uh, I think, you know, it's not always been the case. Like, I feel like the Grand Slams today, because of the race that's going on with the big three, and because there's just so much more emphasis on the slams uh, these days and, you know, more than ever. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're you're right about that. I mean, the Masters 1000s are, uh, you know, sometimes forgotten about with the winners. And uh, because they're seen more as warm-up tournaments to uh, slams mm-hmm. and kind of building that form. Like if you look at, you know, the hard court season, there's a stretch re- leading up to the U.S. Open, which is called the Summer Slam. So there's, you know... Toronto or Montreal, since it alternates every year, and then Cincinnati and the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's kind of a chance for players post-Wimbledon to, you know, win a few matches, get a few, get some confidence under their belt, under their belt, and feel, you know, comfortable with the with the conditions, the yeah. court speed, and kind of get ready for for the U.S. Open. And then we see that also in the clay court season uh, with those three slams. And and actually, you know, I mean, the big three certainly. You know, with Nadal having 135, Djokovic having 135, Federer having 128, um, they look at these tournaments not only as warm-ups, but as individual tournaments 
of their own stature and caliber. Like if you hear Nadal before his press before his pre-tournament press conferences, he often says, you know, the reporter will ask him like, you know, how do you hope to get your form ready in time for Roland Garros? And he'll always answer that, you know, no, like I look at this tournament, like I look at Rome as Rome. For me, it's not preparation for Roland Garros. Yeah. For me, it's winning Rome for the ninth time. So mm-hmm. you see that attitude in players and you, you know, certainly, you know, obviously 2020 is a different scenario because you have Cincinnati and then the US Open. So maybe, you know, it makes sense to, if you've gone all the way to the semis or quarters or final to maybe you know finish out points quicker and maybe and that's no disrespect to the western and southern open that's just the reality of the situation with the pandemic and uh, three weeks of tennis in a row mm-hmm. so yeah i mean that's that's kind of how i feel about it yeah like uh, one of the things that i uh, was um thinking about it as well as uh, and it, it comes out as well like a lot in um conversation is this is how um there's a big gap between people say that the big the gap is bigger because you play uh obviously there's a seven matches that you play is over two weeks so there's a, there's a difference in there the discrepancy is obviously real and so is the, the for example the prestige of the, the grand slams they have a lot of history to them wimbledon is kind yeah. of like where the courts of tennis were invented so it obviously has, holds a lot more um prestige uh, when you look at it in that way but for example if you look um at the Montreal event, and I think Cincinnati as well, those are tournaments that date back from the 1800s. So it's they hold a lot of history as well. So that that's not necessarily what is um, at miss in here, but there's a part of people ha- that will um, also um, argue against the fact that it's a, it's a best of three. So it, it will... Um, be less important in that way. It's kind of like, a, I won't say it's easier to win, but it's obviously like, it's more for everybody else. And in that sense, and it's also one of the arguments, for example, for the women that um, what different, there's little things to differentiate um, Grand Slam for a mandatory premiere, for example, because it, they're all best of three. So the best of five adds to the perception that uh, a Grand Slam is just so much far superior and obviously the the player the players will perceive of them like for example if i were if i were to ask you if you were if you wanted um if you if you could have a tennis career and in it you win um either one grand slam or complete the golden masters which one would you prefer to do yeah that's that's a really good question um you know i think it depends on how consistent also my slam results were you know how close was i to winning that one title because I think, you know, if I made, let's say I made, you know, five or six semifinals and I made a final and runner-up and I had a very good slam career, you know, say I was like a Tomas Burdich or a Sanga or a Ferrer and I, you know, kept getting close to winning slams but just kind of not get over the last hurdle. And then and then you tell and then, you know, I so I have that in the slams and then I've won all nine Masters series. So for me, I like, I would take... Uh, all nine Masters 1000, because that is, you know, something that, you know, certainly I, I would I would remember forever when my career is over. And I can, you know, that's a really proud achievement because it shows mm-hmm. how surface versatile I am, too, that I won, you know, six, uh, six Masters on hard court, three on clay, and that I was able to beat the best players. Okay, granted, in, in a best of three set uh, scenario, but, you know, you can then argue also, like I made the point earlier, that it's, sometimes harder to win master series than certain mm-hmm. slams 
because you don't have that extra day of rest in between and you there are quicker turnarounds and you could potentially play someone ranked 20 in the world as early as a second round so there's all there's all these factors as well too and then you have to factor in the competition and so it's a it's a pretty multifaceted debate in that sense but uh no for me i would take all nine masters 1000s how about you yeah it's it's an interesting thing because i've been trying to just kind of think through it the whole day and obviously like in my head the most logical answer from you would say man i obviously would rather win nine big titles than just one Mm-hmm. Um, like it, it just seems the like the obvious answer, like logically, if you reason it, like it, it just seems to be obvious. Like, yeah, if you think like uh, Indian Wells, Miami, those are crazy tournaments, man. I would love to win in Monte Carlo, just how beautiful that place is. Like Rome, yeah. how much history there is in that place. Um, but then like just kind of like instinctively, I'm like, yeah, but Wimbledon though, like you know what I mean? It's just kind of you you just get the sense that it's like, man, it's a grand slam. It's like and yeah. people say it like with it, and they they're right about it like when they say oh yeah but like the grand slams are the tournaments that that people will remember you for winning and i can sometimes it's it's irrationally a feeling like an emotion that i get when i think man if i had a career that i could win everything except a grand slam mm-hmm. it feels a little empty i'm not going to lie yeah. this kind of like the the perception that i get and uh maybe it's because we're not there like it's maybe it's something that only players actually hold in their in their minds yeah. just like how difficult and how important those things are except Certainly. like and then we as fans like we like to um you know go in and see the those stats and the grand slams and that's uh, that's where we get the epic matches right that's where we get serena williams um throwing tantrums in the final and sure. the big energy of stuff happening you know um and whereas the, the 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 mandatories and the masters they just kind of are more um they they descend down to like more of like a like an actual tennis fan um atmosphere and yeah. uh, it's kind of like you're not necessarily aware of those if you're not a a tennis fan like for example I, I live in Montreal right so Montreal is a pretty big tournament um but every time that I talk to people they they'll be like uh, and they're, they're not tennis fans. They will know about, for example, the Australian Open or Roland Garros. Um, but then they will ask me, is Montreal a big tournament? And I'm like, I mean, heck yeah, it's it's absolutely a big tournament. But like, they just don't know about it. Yeah. So um, maybe there's then, something about the marketing that is a little amiss in that sense. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's complex in that sense because uh, the four slams, uh, like you said, you, we do see those epic historical you know matches even tennis historians like steve flink and uh, joel drucker and you know people like that you hardly ever hear them you know reference a match from a monte carlo semifinal or a monte carlo final just because of that place in history i think because the slams um have such a rich tradition and they've tra- they transcend the sport so you mm-hmm. have people you know that follow basketball baseball or that follow you know are in are actors, are comedians, are celebrities, and they come to the U.S. Open. They sit in Serena Williams's box or yeah. Roger Federer's box, and they take an active interest in in the sport. And you know, and you know, sure, they they might play play it recreationally. They might follow it, but I doubt that you know a, a famous actor like Jerry Seinfeld is going to be sitting there and watching a Montreal final, you know, mm-hmm. over a U.S. Open final, just yeah. because you know this is the Master Series are more for you know hardcore tennis fans and mm-hmm. so those those tennis fans and i and 
those tennis fans will truly sit down and, and follow these, these events. And, you know, just speaking a little bit about the marketing, I think it goes back to there are so many uh, business businesses within and factions within the sport that, you know, the ATP is separate from the slams and the ITF. So, you know, yeah, you, you, you go on YouTube, you go on the social media, it's tennis TV and ATP World Tour that are posting everything uh, about the players. It's all the hot shots. It's all the, um, you know, you'll see it sometimes on on Twitter, all the highlight reels of, you know, really world-class players who have won multiple slams, but then you'll see there's no hot shots from Wimbledon or the US Open or the Australian Open. It's true. Because it's, and then you'll it's, see that yeah. you'll read the comments. I'm sure you've done this. You've, you've read the comments and you're like, you're like, what about Wimbledon, <laughs> you know? And, huh. and you have to ex- kind of explain to that person who's likely a casual yeah. fan that, you know, they're separate and that it's, you know, these tournaments are within their own, you know, kind of realm. And so that can be a little bit confusing, especially if you're not following, if you don't follow the sport. Because yeah. I, I remember when I first started following the game in 2007, 2008, you know, as a young kid, I, I, I didn't know of these other events. And it, it only really just took some hardcore research and a few friends that were really interested in tennis who, who told me about these other tournaments. And then there's also mm-hmm. broadcasting rights and, uh, you know, different yeah. TV rights for the WTA, for the ATP. So there's, there's a lot of, I, I think it's a whole business marketing model that's still well in, it, it's not set in stone and I don't think it'll ever be. Yeah, it's true. that There's the whole... Um... Yeah, the TV rights and all this thing. Like, for example, it was something for me that was uh, weird to understand, I guess, like that um, the ATP didn't own the Grand Slams, um, mm-hmm. uh, but it was like an ITF sanctioned tournament. And yes, it, it was it was a little it was a little awkward for me. It was like, what's what's the difference, though? Like, yeah. I mean, it's it doesn't seem to make that much sense. But like the, the points that they get, they get points all the same. They get records all the same. They get the stats all the same. It doesn't necessarily seem to matter, but yeah. just that it's not something that the ATP can put their hands on. Like it's it's purely um, managerial from that yes. standpoint, and so so that probably hurts a little bit, like in terms of the Masters, because the ATP kind of have to do their own job about it, and uh, it, they just kind of have to go ahead and just promote them. And for yeah. example, you can see um, uh, when you read, I used to read a lot on. Uh, on, at the ATP site, like the, the best matches of the year and the best whatever rivalries of the year. And they always made sure that they made the separation between ATP matches and um, Grand Slam matches. So, right. Um, and in the ATP matches, you would normally get um, ATP 1000s. This prob- that's mostly where the best matches of the year would come from. Right. But it wasn't necessarily reserved to it. And some of the ri- uh, rivalries that they also had in. I believe they had like best Grand Slam rivalries and the best ATP rivalries as well. I'm not yes. sure if I'm correct on that one, but like, um, no, you're right about it. Yeah, yeah. but they but they picked uh, tournaments from the ATP 500 and the 1000, and you know they made that clear separation, that clear distinction from the Grand Slam, and in that sense, like this is ATP, this is Grand Slam. So, yeah. um, so yeah, this is, and oh, you mentioned uh, a little something that I think is interesting as well, like how. Um, the Masters is composed by um, six grand, um, six tournaments on hardcourts and three tournaments on clay, which has been a topic of discussion by a lot of people because um, right. everybody says, and it's, it's totally right, that some 70% of the tournaments on 
on the ATP tour, and I think the the WTA as well. It's um, it's on hard courts, and the right. the other part is reserved to like say twenty five percent is clay, and then the rest five percent is is on grass. So there's yeah. this great discrepancy in terms of surfaces. And without getting too much into, like, for example, the difficulty of, like, managing clay courts or uh, grass courts, because that's one of the biggest uh, factors that made the change into into hard courts is because it's much easier to, to manage, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, how do you think that affects the, 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 the records in terms of, like, in, for example, Nadal has 35 uh, masters out of them, 25 are on clay, mm-hmm. whereas for Djokovic is kind of the opposite-ish. Uh, do you think that affects a little bit in how, how people perceive the, the masters as well? Because there's so many yeah. more on, uh, on 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 hard. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've I've thought about that a lot too. Um, if you just look at like the six masters on hard court and three on on clay, and you kind of wonder why aren't there? Why isn't there maybe one leading into Wimbledon um, mm-hmm. on grass? And you you know because the reality is, uh, Andre, that the Masters one thousands generate a lot of the ATP users' revenue. So it's mm. you know. Most of the revenue that is coming in from the ATP is going to be from the year-end finals, which there's a big prize money pool, obviously, for that. And the mm-hmm. winner gets, you know, $2.5 million, which is comparable to the slams. Not, yeah, not if they win close. all of the matches, right? Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, and ranking points are awarded and prize money goes along with that. But to me, it's a little surprising that there isn't one on grass and you kind of wonder maybe they should, you know, maybe take off a 250 or a 500 and put in one on grass. But I guess that's another debate. Uh, mm-hmm. Just about those nine Masters 1000s, I don't think it really changes the way you look at it in terms of uh, the setup of the tour because, you know, four slam, you have four slams, but two of those are on hard court as well. So it's not just the Masters 1000 that are, yeah. you know, at that ratio because you have, you know, a slam on grass in the French and then the Australian and the US Open. And, you know, for Nadal to have won 35 Masters 1000s and having won 25 on clay, and having won 10 on uh, 10 on hard court, you know that's a that, that that's that's an impressive ratio in its own right. Because you know you could say yes, he bagged most of them from the from the three slams, but it's pretty darn impressive if you look at the numbers mm-hmm. and you think he's won Monte Carlo 11 times, he's won Rome uh, nine times, he's won you know the Madrid on clay four times, and he's won Hamburg once. That mm-hmm. you know that pretty much every year, he's able to dominate and defend his defend his crown, and you know regardless of what what may have happened in the in the hard court stretch or at the Australian Open, he's such a reliable pick that we almost take it for granted, right? And mm-hmm. we all, we almost say he's kind of a shoe in, and you know that that's that does a disservice to Nadal in my opinion, and it takes away the achievement because he makes it look so so easy in the in the record books. Just he's he's won so many and and you know for Djokovic it's it's equally as impressive in my opinion to have won twenty six slams to have won twenty six Masters uh, on hard court and having won nine on clay where you know Nadal is obviously a, an a big favorite force yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so I mean I don't think it changes the way we we look at it I mean you can obviously debate and there'll be debates between the big three you know never ending debates but. They're both pretty impressive. The thirty-five for me. Yeah, and it's uh, on on grass. It's something that it's bothered me for a while now as well. Like, there, why there isn't one? And I always thought, like, why not make um, 
Queen's Club, Queen's, uh, a Masters yeah. 1000. And it's, I think it, it, it drops uh, down in the same vein as uh, when we were talking to uh, Mr. Bodo um, about yeah. like the, how the, the Hamburg fiasco almost broke them. Um, okay. because the, because they, it's, it's tough for them to just move things around even yeah. within their, the, because it's not, the ATP is not like necessarily just this company that has, that owns all of those things The tournaments kind of like own themselves in a way. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a much diff, more difficult, um, thing to come around with, especially if you're thinking about, um, downgrading tournaments, which we, we would have to do. You either would have to downgrade a tournament or you would have to have 10, uh, masters 1000 instead of um nine yeah and i think that would be pushing it a lot and it, uh, it will yeah so it, there in in my head like i never really could um pinpoint like which masters we would be able to like downgrade because they're also um spread it in in a different way throughout the the year so you have like a lot of points to gain all the way up to paris which is the last right. tournament of the year and it's a masters 1000 so Sure. And lots of people actually have taken points out of this tournament, which is probably lots of people would say that it's the, the lowest profile because I believe like 10 or nine years in a row, that was a different player. Right. Players are just cooked at the end of the season. So like lots of, lots of them either decide not to play or just can't make it um, into the, the, the final or the last round. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough for me to say, for example, uh, yeah, as much as Nadal has like 25 and 10, uh, has this ratio, like for example, Roger Federer has no grass tournaments, which is his prefer- preferred surface. Right. And arguably, yeah. he would have arguably probably would, tied. Would, yeah, be tying them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. If he had like the, the Masters on, on grass. And another thing that I thought I think is interesting on the, the Masters debate as well is how... Um, well, we've discussed how they changed the nomenclatures and there's a, the, the switching of Hamburg to um, another tournament. I think it was Madrid to be, used to be on, on hardcourts and now it's yeah. on clay. But um, there's also the fact that it used to be played on best of five in the finals. Do, how, yeah. much, how much do you think that affects uh, records such as Djokovic, who has never, I think he has never won a, a Masters 1000 on a best of five sets. Something that Federer and Nadal did themselves. I, I guess it's a case in point for Roger Federer because he did win many you know between 2000 let's say 2004 to 2007 because that's really when the switch happened is um, in 2008 uh, onwards is when you know certain uh, because there used to be a little bit like some were best of three and some were best of five and so like I'm talking about just the final round Mm -hmm. and so that always um you know you know made a difference back in the day but i don't think in terms of like if you look at record books from 2008 onwards i don't think it would i think everyone is on an even playing field i think it just also the records also depend uh you know also on how many you played and what your win rate was so how many did you what were your percentage was because i also think that some players skip certain masters strategically Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know that's not just that's not because they're not important tournaments it's just to get ready for the slam or to you know give yourself a break for example uh, Roger Federer often skips Canada right after Wimbledon he has yeah, goes exactly. deep in Wimbledon and he says okay you know it makes sense for me and my family and my health I'll skip Canada I'll go straight to Cincy and, and play the US Open so yeah, to get a longer like break or, or he doesn't play the Paris Masters for instance 
mm-hmm. which I mean, at, at that point, he's already qualified, or maybe he doesn't really have a realistic shot at the getting the world number one ranking, or he wants to peak at the world tour finals. So again, it, it's it's a player, it's the player's decision, you know, which masters they they play, and there's rules in place that you you know yeah you must play a, so you a must number play at yeah. six or there's rules like that. But I don't think it, like like best of five, um, it it can be looked at a little bit differently in terms of like the epic matches. Like you say, wow, like look at the 2006 Rome match, which I think yeah. pretty much transcends history, and that was a seven six in the fifth uh, win for Nadal. But I, I don't think it takes anything away from Djokovic. And actually, Djokovic did play one best of five set, uh, which was his first one in Miami. He defeated uh, Guillermo Cañas in the final. Mm. And that was uh, straight sets, but uh, three sets, straight set win. So, mm. yeah, I mean, you're right. Since then, 34 or 35 have been best of three in the final. But then you can also argue that um, it's been tougher, like in, in, in some sense. The scheduling has been tougher. The draws have yeah. gotten, the depth of the ATP has gotten greater. Since then, the style of play has changed. Now there's a lot more powerful aggressive baseliners there's less margin for error that's the Mm. other thing too is i think in best of three you always feel like the big servers or players who have really big games or you know players that are that maybe don't quite have a shot like the second week of a slam uh they certainly you know have have realistic probabilities of winning of getting hot and winning these titles you know Mm -hmm. someone like a john isner has made yeah. five Masters 1000 finals and he converted and he won Miami in 2018. Yeah. So, like players like that, you know, who normally, you know, don't go further than the third or fourth round in a slam. Mm. So I, I think it also rewards players who play big, serve big, and, and on any given day, it's dangerous for all the top players. Yeah. They have less margin versus in yeah. yeah. I think, uh, I think Isner won Indian Wells, by the way, right? If I'm, uh, no, he got to the he got to the final in Indian Wells in 2012 and uh, lost to Federer, but he did beat Djokovic in that semifinal. Yeah, which was epic. Um, and I think yeah. And speaking of like epicness, I think it's it's only human. Like uh, that. Uh, like for example, there were just too many best of five sets. Like in my opinion, if you look at like uh, and you mentioned how the game got like very yeah. physical from the baseline, which makes for like much longer points, and how the schedule is now a little bit more compressed. So that the players essentially get a little bit more time off at the end of the year, um, and uh, you know, I think making the finals not best of five, no best of three. I think it's it's probably just in a sense, and something that probably the players bargain for. I think because yeah. it's it's just to preserve their their health. It's their at the end of the day, they will they will finish their career probably at thirty five or. Um, if you're if you're lucky, like Roger, or if you really want to go um, over and playing, maybe maybe you you finish your career at forty forty one, and yeah. at forty forty one you're still pretty much a, a young human in a sense, right? So you still have yeah. a lot of life in front of you, and you don't want to just destroy your body like with yeah with stuff think, like that. I think that and was their that was their motive behind it too, and I think a exactly. lot of players rallied behind it, and they they said, you know what, uh, there's too many tournaments that have best of five sets in the. In, in the in the final and it's it's exhausting i mean tennis is played the whole year there's 63 tournaments played in 31 different countries yeah and you know to go all the way second week and come back and play right again 
another masters because some of the masters as you know are uh two weeks in a row so that that makes it yep, even exactly. harder, especially if you're playing if you're playing best of five now i will say that i do miss some of the atp world tour finals best of five set uh yeah matches because i think that's the best way to go out at the end of the season hmm. to have uh, like a like a five set a best of five set final we could have seen a lot yeah, like the nambandi and federer 2005 eh? yeah and you know since then we we haven't seen too many like because they stopped doing that from 2007 mm-hmm. so after federer beat ferrer if you look at all the finals since then we've only had three that have gone to three sets or more mm. i mean that have gone to three sets and best of three yeah, sets yeah. matches again that that has to do with that time of the year that players are cooked uh, yeah. you know it's the last final match of the year and you know sometimes they haven't been great epic epic matches a lot of straight sets and and i, I think some of that might have to do recently especially because the, there's a there's always the davis cup finals that are played after yes that is a thing too and that 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 makes it really hard for the, yeah. for the players to then go and, yeah. and it cuts into their off season and so you have all these different um kind of intangibles that go with that but yeah. but I do wish this from a fan, just from a maybe a slightly selfish perspective from my end. But I would love to see a best of five set, uh, ATP finals final again. Yeah, it, it would be interesting. Uh, I think, um, because like without without like uh maybe, or maybe just going into like the the whole best of five thing just a little bit just to maybe um start wrapping up here um mm-hmm. um you know. It's it's obviously like at the end of the season you don't players there is a chance that they will even retire before their final or during their final or the match is not going to be as good so maybe to make it competitive make it in best of three at the World Two finals mm-hmm. but another talk in terms of the best of five and uh, it's been I don't know if it's just getting heated up because it's it's Twitter but um I think it would be it would be really interesting um if uh, people started considering. Moving around the uh, best of five um, sets to maybe the second week of a slam instead of like all of it for the men. Obviously, the women play best of three. And one yeah. of the things that I always thought would be interesting for the women as well, and that's obviously not in the power of the fans, it's obviously the, in, in power of the players and how they negotiate their things. It's how, um, how if, if, uh, if women could play best of five in the final only. Mm. Only in a Grand Slams level, like nowhere else. I think that would right. raise the quality, not the the quality, but like the the significance of it. Because if, uh, as you as you as we were talking at the beginning of this episode, how um, the best of five maybe raises the uh, the perception of uh, the Grand Slams in the eyes of the fans for the men, because it's two weeks of five set matches, seven seven straight matches. They have to play best of five. Um, right. Uh, for the women, that doesn't happen. So, like, maybe if you had that one difference to play just just one that one match at a best of five, um, yeah. maybe maybe this could raise the profile. But maybe I'm just wrong, and like maybe maybe the answer oh. is actually to like tone down a bit from the best of five on the on the men's side. But it's it's all it's it's kind of like hard to balance the uh, product of tennis mm. and obviously the epic matches. If we didn't have the best of five in the first round, Andy Murray would have lost in straight sets today. It's a Tuesday yeah. as we do this episode. He came back from two sets to love down, and a few other players have already done so in this tournament at the U.S. Right. Open. So, but that that is a lot of those things that are, are considerable. So yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, the best of five said, I mean, I'm actually with you on that. Like, the make the finals for the WTA, make the finals of the slams um, best of five. Obviously, it's much easier said than than done, but mm-hmm. it's it would certainly raise the bar in terms of the quality of the matches and also the perception of the of the fans and the and and the media and it could go do even more wonders into um, transcending the sport and certainly a lot of the women's finals that have been forgotten about or you know maybe under the radar a little bit they were maybe over too quickly and you know that can happen like you can have a grand slam final that finishes in in under an hour and mm-hmm. you know next thing you know it's kind of like a like a like a prelude to the men's final and i don't think I think women's tennis is incredibly uh, powerful in terms of transcending the game. And, you know, if we look at like just the women's women's tennis, it's one of the most popular. Uh, it's very popular in term, uh, for, for the women to go into, into tennis. You see that the highest yep, earning exactly. athletes, nine of the top 10 that made the Forbes list in 2020 were all tennis players. So from that, and, and it's, we're the only sport really that does equal prize money in the majors. Despite the women having playing seven matches best of three sets and the men playing seven mm-hmm. matches best of five, but I, do, I I think you know for them for that to really be successful, you know majority of players have to be on board, the uh, negotiations have to be done behind the scenes, and you know maybe so a few more trial runs, maybe in a WTA finals on a fast court, make the final a best of three best of five set match. And see, mm-hmm. you know, what the what do the players think about it? Maybe try it in a, in, you know, obviously I'm in no position of power, but I'm it's just, yeah. you know, thinking out loud here that, you know, maybe in a final of a premier five mandatory or a final of a premier, yeah, really in the premier mandatories is when you can really trial it and see, you know, what do the players think? Because I remember um, if you go back and you look at tennis history, 1984 to 1997, uh, the mm-hmm. women's WTA finals final were all best of five set matches. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of those matches, players or historians definitely recall a lot of those matches, especially in the year-end championships that went best of five sets for the women in uh, um, in the finals. When you had you know, Navratilova and Graf and Mandelkova and all these players that are icons in, in women's tennis. So, mm-hmm. you know, it definitely could add value from a fan's perspective, but it's extremely hard in this day and age. Also, you have to remember the way we consume sports is very different now. You know, yeah. the game is the game and the lifestyle that people are living now is changing. I think it just goes much deeper than just scheduling the calendar. I think you also yeah. have to look at what can be done. How can tennis be marketed differently in terms of, you know, maybe making matches shorter, making it more fast paced. Uh, more engaging mm-hmm. for the fans because we consume a lot of tennis fans today, you know, don't consume tennis by straight up watching live matches the whole day. It's just yeah. physically impossible and and it's too demanding of a schedule. It's too hard to, yeah. to follow. And so you have to consume yeah. videos through social media and, and, and marketing and highlights and, and, you know, all these, all these things. And so if there's always an argument that if matches were maybe shorter and, you know, attention spans, because, People nowadays, the the generation is, is much, uh, yeah, much, much shorter. shorter. Yeah. So yeah. there's all these arguments, and you remember with the UTS going on and exhibitions going on in the during the pandemic. You know, tennis is 
experimenting with it. And, you know, like they should, because it doesn't hurt to try them when there's not as much stake involved. Yeah. And exhibitions is definitely the place to do it. Exactly. And yeah. Yeah. And coming back to the topic of uh, the masters and specifically just because um, the Djokovic double masters um, has just happened uh, that he he was able to win all of the masters, the nine masters, 1000 tournaments twice, at least. And uh, obviously a, a lot of his, this achievement is hurt by Djokovic's reputation, especially this year. But um, all obje- objectively thinking, suppose Nadal would have been able to do this, or Federer, you have it. Like those are probably the two biggest um, fan bases in our sport, and um, yeah. and so they they would people would definitely not diminish this as much as uh, a Djokovic double Masters, and obviously yeah. that is more than just uh, his. Uh, his his kind of like stuff that he pulled out this year. There's um, a few controversies and during the tournament, uh, or as some people see as controversies, but not getting too much into that. Like really, just the significance of a a double Masters as an achievement. Um, right. Like for for me, in in my opinion, I think this is, I think it's pretty big, regardless of how many surfaces they were won in, and uh, considering obviously that Nadal. Is uh, the the um, the dominant force that he is on clay, having won twenty five of his uh, all of his masters on on those? Yeah, it, it makes like this this window of winning clay titles like really small for outsiders. Yeah. So, I think obviously the Madrid tournament being a little bit of an exception because Nadal tends to be a little bit more cooked up in that tournament. Yeah. Um, and but but yeah, I, I think. Um, I think that this uh, this should be perceived a little bit more yeah. um, awe, especially by us tennis fans. I'm yeah, not uh, I mean, I'm not asking for people outside of our sport to understand this, but like for us to be understanding how the Masters tournament is 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 really a big uh, thing. Obviously, not as big as the the, the Grand Slams um, records and whatnot, but it's it's very much up there in one of the biggest achievements of all time, in my opinion. For me, honestly, it's a mind blowing uh, mind blowing achievement and. You know, I don't even consider myself a diehard Djokovic fan, you know. But for me, it's just, it's it's a phenomenal achievement because it's something that no one has ever done, let alone once he's down, done it twice. And for that to be a little bit, you know, diminished is is unfortunate a little bit for him. I feel for him mm-hmm. there in the sense that, you know, he sometimes unfortunately gets the raw deal, you know, because he, because of the kind of polarizing personality and, uh, and things that he has, you know, maybe done in, in recent, recently in 2020 that are controversial. If you include his involvement in politics, you include the exhibition tour that he set up during the pandemic, and you know certain things that are outside, that are not related to him on the court. Mm. And that is a little bit unfortunate that you know people and fans cannot objectively look at off-court versus on-court because that unfortunately there's off-court performances this year unfortunately diminish this achievement but that's um that's extremely sad because i do think if it was a roger federer or rafael nadal people would be talking about this a lot more you would see a lot more posts on social media you would see tribute videos of all 35 masters you'd see you'd see highlights and shots and people would be talking about it for days and 
you know, it would just get a lot more attention. I think definitely it would transcend the sport more. And mm-hmm. that's that's just uh, unfortunately the way the the way it is. And Djokovic is this is not the first time he's dealing with this. He's had to do this. He's had to deal with this with this uh, a lot. Being the third wheel, it's really it's it's mm-hmm. tough for him. But it it's also one of the things that motivates him, I believe. Yeah. When when you see that the crowds are against him, when you see that he's not loved as much as the other two rivals, that that serves as as motivation for him, and he thrives upon that and so I, I think objectively looking it's a it's a huge accomplishment maybe one of his best achievements especially if you think about all the titles that he's won he's won 80 total titles in his career mm-hmm. and if you just break that down it's it's mind-boggling to me that he's won 35 masters 1000s 17 grand slams and five world mm-hmm. tour finals so that means 57 out of his 80 t- tournaments that he's won are yeah they're the big, big titles which is which is just astonishing. Like that, that those kind of records, you know, I, I will be almost impossible to to achieve um, in mm-hmm. the next generation, and even by Roger and Rafa, including yeah. these two. So it's it's unfortunately the way it is, but it's a huge yeah achievement. yeah. I think it, it's kind of almost like the 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 thing when you have like can you separate the art from the artists in in that sense like in the translating it to the sports world is like can you separate the the achievement from the the human the the player who's playing that whose whose hands have lifted the trophy i think it's 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 a tough call because i think it's also unfortunate for the the reputation of the masters 1000 that like I'm, and i'm a djokovic fan and and i say it like it's 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 rough and it's a little sad like the things that he's been yeah. uh, getting involved into um but uh, to to see that the masters 1000 have been taken a bit of a hit because of his own reputation is a little sad to me because they are big tournaments that are um very interesting to watch and they produce very great matches and players are really pumped to win it like i remember marty fish unfortunately couldn't finish his career career with one of those but he uh after he lost to roger federer in cincinnati i don't remember exactly when yeah he, he was saying yeah he was saying like uh, well i really really wanted that one it's like yeah he finished his career sadly without being able to win he was a, a finalist a couple of times and the winners were um andy roddick who has won again like the second mo- the fourth most out of the big four um a big gap by the way just at five and the next one is murray at 14 um but and then djokovic and then federer beat him so it's the the path to winning those tournaments is is mind-bogglingly difficult because of the competition of the big four who's who's out there and like winning those tournaments and so yeah i i think the masters 1000s should definitely be regarded a little bit higher especially by by us the fans who actually know what's going on who actually know um how difficult it is and how tough those matches are and the competition and you you have it so like it's yeah it's it's all a a matter of um separating trying to separate the sport maybe even from the players it's a Mm. it's kind of like nobody nobody's nobody's saying the grand slams are not important because uh margaret court is who she is right so yeah um they're still really important <laughs> regardless of the the player and so are the masters i i guess that's for for me that's my my major take mm-hmm. from those mm-hmm. yeah that's a good good takeaway i think uh, as tennis fans they certainly should be held in higher regard considering 
how big of an achievement, like you said, like to, you know, go through potentially three or four top 10 players to win in a given week is not easy by any means. And it should be celebrated a lot more. You know, when you asked me that question about, you know, whether would you rather win nine Masters 1000s versus, you know, one slam, I thought that's almost impossible because if I had won nine Masters 1000s, I definitely would have won a slam. It's, it's just, yeah. <laughs> it's just that uh, it's one of those fun, really fun hypothetical debates to have. But, you know, it's a it's a huge achievement. I, I Every single player that has won a Masters 1000, basically since 2003, I hold them in really high regard mm-hmm. because I know what an extraordinary achievement it was for them to hold that crown at the end, even if it was just a Paris Masters title. Yeah. You know, it's it's still it's a, it's a huge achievement to to be regarded in that in that elite list. Yeah. So and and definitely I do think there's certain Masters 1000s that do uh, transcend the sport a little bit more. For example, every year the ATP does an award where they have a best tournament for the 500s, for the 250, for the 1000s. And I think Indian Wells, because of the location, because of the improved facility, and because of the deepness of the field, it's basically regarded as a fifth slam Yeah. Um, within their marketing. And mm-hmm. and it's won the, the best Masters 1000 tournament crown for several, several years in a row because the players feel extremely welcomed. There's, you know, 128 players in the draw versus, yeah, or 64 rather, but you know, still pretty much. I think it's 96 top. players. Yeah, so exactly, yeah, more mm-hmm. than the others, and so pretty much, and the player has, and the seeded players have to win six matches rather than five, and it's almost two weeks, so it's almost considered like a fifth slam. Yeah. And so I think it's just, it's just about, uh, it, it's it's about what how tennis goes beyond tennis if that makes sense yeah i fully agree with that and yeah and and i guess uh that will conclude a little bit of our short discussion about the masters 1000 and incidentally talking a bit about the premier mandatory but that one is is a little trickier though because um the 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 way of the structure of the wta is a little bit less Mm. um out there it's it's a little bit more complex yeah. So, not to say that it's difficult to understand, but For like sure. you know, and the WPA yeah. is still working on. Um, you know, I've heard from people on Twitter and from the WTA, like uh, Insider podcast episode ones that I listened to, that they're trying to, you know, make it easier for fans to follow, like Premier Five versus Premier Mandatory, mm. and because there's actually compartmentalized further. Uh, factions within the WTA so it's not quite as straightforward maybe and they're they're still fighting for things like equal prize money to the Mm. men because if you look at certain masters or premieres the combined events are really the ones that sell the sport the most so like an Indian Wells is the same like like a premier mandatory and and a masters or like a Madrid like a Cincinnati those are the tournaments that I think attract the most amount of fans because they're combined events and I think uh, the way we should market our sport and the way we should sell the sport is we should try to sell it as one whole unified product. Yeah. That's easier for the fans and the media and people to follow and get more people interested uh, in the game. You know, that would mm-hmm. certainly be my take if I was involved in the marketing. 
Yeah, I, I fully agree with that one as well. So yeah, that's that's pretty much all the time that we have for this. And uh, mm-hmm. we hope that you're the listener is enjoying the US Open because we certainly are. And there will be more um, episodes coming out about the US Open, uh, hopefully a mid-week uh, episode, like a, like a mid-fortnight episode, if you will. And we will come back uh, once the, the Open is finished to mm-hmm. uh, reevaluate our picks and our predictions and see whether, like, how, what's the level of uh, rightness or <laughs> wrong that, that we're see how in it. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thank you so much. And thank you so much, Vansh. Uh, you're going to be here for a lot more episodes from now on as my co-host. And thank you for everybody who listens. Don't forget to um, follow us in all of our social media. Everything is in the description. Vansh uh, on Twitter is at VanshV2K. And I am at Tennis underscore Bagels. Um, follow us. We're pretty active there. And all of the other social media will be in the description, as I mentioned prior. Yes. So may I could just quickly yeah. add also uh, to our listeners, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes as that helps us grow our podcast through the Apple platform. And that's uh, very much appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. If you like our work and not just my work now, uh, please do so. And it it's, supports me a lot, um, mm-hmm. that and listening. So yeah, share away with your family, friends, they know like tennis. And that will be it. Um, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye, Vansh. Yep, bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.